Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We're excited to bring you some great stories from our team. They work hard to bring you these stories every week. We love sharing this content with you, stories about a country that, while not perfect, is beautiful. And if you listen to our podcast and the stories on our website, you'll know it's true. While our content may be free to listen to, it's certainly not free to make. 
We'd ask that you join us financially in all that we do here. Visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. You can sign up to give $5, 10 or even $20 a month. Each gift you make makes a difference because it's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now for today's stories, we bring you the story of Taylor Dooley, the actress best known for her role as Lava Girl. We'll also bring you the story of Harley Davidson. But first, the story of Dick Erickson, a Marine helicopter pilot who served in Vietnam. Here's Joey with a story. Dick Erickson was a Marine helicopter pilot in Vietnam and would go on to start his own retail tire business. But before he became the man he is today, he was a different man. As a student, quick to anger, Dick often got into trouble. I was fooling with one of my friends, and the principal was in and out because it was a study hall. And we were goofing off. In comes the principal, and he gets after me to start with. And my buddy standing behind him, waving his hands to get me to laugh. And so here I am trying to be serious with my principal. And, and so I'm trying to look around him like, hey, someone's behind you, make, try, waving his hands at me. So finally he turns around, and Marvin gets his hands down quick enough that he didn't see his hands up. So now he's chewing him up, and I get into the deal, and I'm waving my hands, except when he turns around, I got my hands straight in the air, and he slaps me. And next thing you know, we were on the ground. I was on, knocked over rows of chairs, and I was swearing at him afterwards. Well, I completely lost it. And in college, with the distraction of girls and booze, his grades suffered. I got noticed two weeks into that quarter that I'm out of school for a year. That was for grades. And I can remember standing out in front of the big main hall with the guy who gave me the news, who was head of our music department, Mr. Van Vlissinger. And, he, and I said, doctor, I said, I, I mean, if a year? I said, do you understand? They'll, they're going to draft me. He said, Erickson, you should have understood that when you're out playing around. Just before I went in the Marine Corps, a friend of mine came up to me who was a year older than me, and he'd been in the Army. He was home. He's out of the Army. And he said, Dick, you'll never make it in the Marine Corps. I said, why is that, Gordy? And he said, because one of the drill instructors is going to be going to get in your face and touch you, and you're going to lose it, and you'll be in a brig. And that, that comment kept me from retaliating. And so I had, those are growth deals for me was to, you know, not screw up my life. Getting ahead of the draft, Dick enrolled in officer training school to become a Marine helicopter pilot. Though he was a Christian, Dick hadn't really owned that identity for himself. And while in Vietnam, he encountered what some might call a Godwink that would help him become the man he is today. One time we got this prisoner and they wanted to take him down to the, to the coastline at the division headquarters for interrogation. And that was probably an hour and a half flight for us. And we had single engine aircraft and we did not like to fly at night over the mountains. 
So they said, guys, uh, crank them up. Let's go. So we cranked up our helicopters, two of us, two helicopters, and went down there. We dropped him off, and then we said, well, we'll take... We took him the most expedient way was over the mountains. We could have kind of gone down through valleys and stuff. If I'm, probably taken us an extra 30 minutes or so, but we went kind of the more direct route. Well, trouble was, every time you're flying, something needs some needs of the helicopter come up. You'd be missing something or you'd need some sort of parts brought up by the guys the next day. So we were trying to get up with our base station that night, which was up up the coast a little further. And the static was so bad that night that we couldn't uh, we couldn't make contact and we'd listen we'd, and it'd be something like uh, we'd always use uh, Papa base, which would be our base. Um, this is Sirapapa 15 would be our call sign. And so we were going back and forth like this, trying to connect with our base. And the static was so bad, finally just absolutely cleared up. No sound. And this voice comes up and says, this is the Lord. I will relay for you. Couldn't hear anything at all. Didn't hear the engines running. Absolutely silence. The voice said, I will, I will get your message to your base camp. Trouble is, we never got back on the radio. No one talked to each other. You know, you think someone would quickly say, who, who said that? It was so, I don't know what the word would be, but it was, so t- it was such a hit on us. It was just like the Lord had spoken. And, I, and, I, and in my mind, he had. No one says anything. We got about 20 minutes to get up to the base. Quezon. No one speaks. Finally, we had to get on the radio to get Clarence to land at the base. Got on it. Everyone jumps out of the aircraft. Did you hear that? Did you? Everyone heard it. But no one, everyone was affected to the point they could not talk about it until they hit ground. It was absolutely the most startling, scary thing I'd ever heard. Did I ever hear another voice like that in my 13 months that was completely clear? No. I don't know that I could ever explain how the silence around it was. Just those words, and this is hope of nothing else. It was the most terrifying thing I'd ever heard, and it wasn't just me. I know how we felt, and we knew that something surreal had gone on. Here it was, I came out of a strong Christian home and all that, was in Vietnam 13 months, and didn't go to, didn't go to the chapel one time. So that brought my spiritual, I was, it was kind of a wake-up call for me. I better get my, my head straight here. There is some things beyond just what we're going through. Which didn't fully sink in until after coming back from Vietnam and marrying his wife, Diane. We went on a marriage encounter. You have a couple couples that over the weekend starts Thursday night and they just talk about how to have a good marriage. I'd probably been a new Catholic about a year. 
Diane had been after me to go to this event. And she said, Dick, I said, okay. Um, they say we can't take any wine. I'm not going unless I can take a bottle of wine. She said, what else do you want to do? So I said, okay, if I take the wine? Yeah, okay. So I thought, well, I, I didn't get out of this, so I got to go. So I go, and about half the group, the husband and wives are quite friendly, you know, arms around their wives and all that. And I'm, I've never been about showing a lot of affection in public. So I'm looking around, I'm going, I, I got to put up with this for two and a half days. And so we go through this by, this is Thursday night. By Friday night, I'm sitting a little closer to Diane, and I'm kind of enjoying this. By Saturday, I mean, I got my arm around her. I am into this. And now it's confession time. What, what the priest did, he would come up to your room. He'd go from room to room in this motel and have confession. And then you go into the bathroom for your penance. And I'm still kind of new at this. I'm, you know, I've been through a few confessions, but I hadn't overworked it at all. So I uh, have my confession and, I, and uh, Father says, uh, Dick, I want you to step in the bathroom and I want you to take as much time as you can give it to thank the Lord for all the things he's done for you. I said, okay. So I go into the bathroom. I make it about three minutes and I'm sobbing like a baby. So that was my move. And I remember coming back and I'm going, oh, I mean, you're so fired up. Boy, I'm, I'm over here now. Turned my heart over to the Lord. I said, I'm sorry. So then, I mean, I'm going, oh man, I have been fighting this. I've been on the outside looking in the window, knowing what those good Christians are doing, but I won't go in the door. I'm not going in there. You know, I didn't know the goodness of the Lord for sure at that point. I'd seen it in my wife. I'd seen it in my, my parents and other Christians, but I was this tough Marine. I was, you know, just some screwed up thinking I had. And so when that night, all of a sudden, that just was pulled away from me. And then I could, ooh. But I didn't realize how much I had to go through to turn my heart over to the Lord. And people say, you know, it's like Protestants use a born again. Well, that's one way to say it. But, you know, however you want to explain it, that, Lord, I'm sorry. You're in charge. I've been trying to run this. And I, 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 I'm just not, this isn't my job. It's your job, me to follow you. And what a story, Dick Erickson, while well, sharing his heart and his faith with all of us. And great job, as always, to Joey for bringing us this story. Clearly, he had an encounter, a bunch of the men did in that chopper. But then he had a marriage encounter. And this is where the rubber hits the road. I didn't realize how much I had to go through to turn my heart over to the Lord, this tough Marine said. Lord, I'm sorry, you're in charge. Christians know what those words mean. And, by the way, you can catch the rest of Dick's story in his book, How the Rubber Meets the Road, a blue-collar roadmap to success for business owners and entrepreneurs. You can buy it at Amazon.com. By the way, if you love what you're listening to, go ahead and please give us a five-star rating. And while you're at it, review us. 
Let us know what you like about the show. It helps others find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Up next, actress Taylor Dooley shares the story of when she played the role of Lava Girl at the age of 13. More than 15 years later, she has returned to acting to play the same role in the Netflix film We Can Be Heroes. Here's Taylor to tell her story. I was just a little girl with a big dream when I was probably 10. I, I wanna, Yeah, I was about 10 when I caught kind of the acting bug a little bit. I had been through a few modeling classes and was modeling and having fun. My dad saw this thing to be able to take some acting classes and thought, hey, maybe you might like that as well. So I did absolutely fell in love with it to my parents dismay they they didn't they didn't know anything about the acting world or anything about it nor wanted me really to be into it much but once their daughter fell in love with it they kind of just really pushed me through that we were living in Arizona at the time and my mom was crazy enough and wonderful enough to start driving me back and forth to auditions for commercials and such so we were driving like eight hours a day to come to California to go on an audition just to drive back home which was absolutely insane and then my agency suggested that I should go on theatrical auditions for tv shows movies so they kind of switched me over to there and that's when one of my very first auditions was the adventures of Sharkboy and Lava Girl I ended up booking that which was such a special special thing and that became kind of the catapulting thing that took my career over a little bit, which is absolutely amazing and I feel super, super blessed for. But growing up in the business is kind of very crazy and I think that people don't touch on it as much. We kind of hear about it a little bit in the news and with people who grow up in the business, you kind of, the media I think shies away a little bit from that. Growing up in and around with everybody around the same age as I was, you know, hanging out with everyone from Nickelodeon and Disney and all those shows and all those fun things after Sharkboy and Lava Girl came out. It was so much fun and I had like such an interesting childhood getting able to meet all these fun people but my parents the entire time had this thought that I just was a hard childhood. They they thought that I should be able to be a kid and not be working and so that's kind of when people find me nowadays on Instagram, everyone's like, where did you go? After Sharkboy and Lava Girl, I kind of vanished a little bit from the entertainment industry. And it was because my parents had the want to take me out and make me live a normal, regular life. When you're a child actor, you have usually, I mean, even as an adult, you have a manager and an agent, usually. And when you're a kid, they don't they don't really talk to you, they talk to your parents. So I didn't really understand or know much of the business aspect of anything. It just was my parents handling everything. So they behind the scenes knew of a lot of stuff that I didn't know that was going on, which is why I, I had I in my brain more license to be angry at them when they did pull me out because I didn't know all the business end stuff that came from it. But my parents just felt like it just didn't feel like you could have an authentic childhood if you were busy being a little adult at 10, 11, 12, even, you know, even as a teenager. Because when you're a kid, you just usually have to worry about kid things. But when you're in the business, you start worrying about things like 
you know, how many auditions did you have before you got a call back or how many times you, you know, you've booked something, all your friends are working and you're not working, but you're only 14. Most people aren't working at your age. So there's so many rejections that happen before you get one yes, that as a kid, it's really hard to swallow that because you're not usually dealing with that amount of rejection as you know as an adult you go on work interviews and you you are prepared for that mentally and emotionally but as a kid you don't you can't separate the why didn't I get the it's you're kind of you're selling yourself as an actor a little bit you know and it hurts when you don't get things consistently for a while i also twofold had something else going on where i i kind of grew really early and in the business that they want older kids that look younger, not younger kids that look older. And so I had a lot of people want to book me for auditions right after Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And then I got so old looking that they would, they were like, well, she doesn't look 14. And I was 14 at the time. I'm like, but I am 14. So my parents were just looking around and just seeing all the, how all this rejection was like devastating my confidence in who I was and I was such a my parents always describe me to myself they'll tell me that I was like a really self-confident super outgoing they would say and I was like a little spark plug and a few years in the business and it was really I was getting depressed and I was getting sad because when you love something that that much I, I couldn't understand why I wasn't working when some of my friends were or things weren't happening for me and it just was really devastating to who I was so my parents didn't like that and they were really worried about what that would look like and translate to into adulthood or young adulthood just having that self-doubt and so they wanted to put me in high school to just take a break from it and not worry about it and to be a normal kid so that I could come back as an adult and be able to handle the rejection and everything that comes with being an actor. At the time, I didn't agree with them. <laughs> and I think I, my mom put me in high school and I remember crying in the front office, telling her that she did not love me because she was making me stop acting and go to school like a normal teenager. And I remember just being such a wreck in the front office of this high school. Like, if you leave me here, I promise you, you just hate me. You must hate me. I was so upset with her. And hindsight, I, it ended up being the best thing to ever happen to me because I got to kind of live not such a sheltered life and do some of my other life goals before I was able to get back into acting uh, now. So I'm thankful that they did that because it, I definitely learned a lot about myself. And I had a few years, I think, that after leaving the industry that I kind of got really upset and mad at God for a while because I, I would say to him, <laughs> why did you put something so deep on my heart? Like, why do I love this so much, but yet I can't do it? Like, my friends are working and I'm not. Why is that? And I realized throughout the years that it was just because I had already always prayed and wanted an adult career and to be an adult actor because I never really wanted to do the kid fluff stuff. I was always so much older than my age acting. I was like 13 and I used to tell everyone I wanted to be like Natalie Portman. I was always very, I just wanted a very serious adult career which doesn't happen when you're a kid usually. So it kind of was, I think, God's way of answering my 
prayer in a roundabout way. You just never know when you're in it and it feels emotional when you're in it. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I'm thankful that I didn't work through those years and that my parents pulled me out and I was able to take that break because it allowed me to, as, as I said, it allowed me to kind of grow as my own person and heal from some of the wounds that I feel like as a kid, child actor I got from the rejection and all that stuff and, and to be able to just kind of have a basis of who I am. And it also helped shepherd kind of more of a, a faith. I've always, my family has always been, I kind of grew up, my parents found God when I was young-ish. I think I was like five or six when we started going to church. My parents started learning a little bit more about God. I am from, originally from Michigan. My whole family, um, my parents had never left Michigan when, uh, until we moved for my brother's health. And my brother was a twin, born insanely prematurely. He was born three and a half months early, and but we ended up losing my uh, one of the twins, one of my brothers. But my brother was a miracle baby, my other brother, who did make it. Uh, his name's Andrew. He made it, and his lungs were just severely underdeveloped, and the cold from Michigan was uh, really hard on his lungs. So we needed to move someplace warm, so my parents found Arizona, which is insanely warm. So it worked out perfectly. And my brother, who could barely walk because his lungs were so horrible, I think we moved when he was four and I was six. And by the time we moved to Arizona, we were there like two weeks and he was already being able to swim and dive in the pool. His lungs had just developed so much better in the warmth, which was such a blessing in and of itself. But that's my brother is kind of how my parents found God, because with the tragedy of the twins and not knowing my brother was in the NICU for over 100 days, because when he was born, he was born just over a pound. He was just the tiniest little thing. They kind of through that experience and losing my other brother and trying to worry about whether my my brother Andrew was going to live, they, they found God and found their faith and kind of kept it through all those years. They really were what showed me what faith kind of looked like, but was kind of crazy is that we... We're kind of all learning to do it together. My parents, they called themselves baby Christians at the time because they didn't really know anything about it. So they just, we all kind of were learning together as a family, which I think made it so much closer for all of us. We were always very close. So I kind of was always grown up knowing about that, but I uh, kind of really took my faith as my own as I was able to step out of the business and kind of be a teenager away from everything. And when you're kind of that age, of angsty wanting to know like what this world is about. It was nice to be able to be away from the industry and being away from that to be able to kind of cultivate my own faith and my own identity as to who I am. Because when you're in the business at such a young age, it's like such a sheltered, people kind of tell you who you are because it's, it's like an oxymoron. You have to grow up so quickly uh, and be a little adult at like 11 years old. But then you they also tell you who you are it's like as a kid it's really hard to muddle through what's what and so it was nice to be able to take a step back and then when I went to high school I I didn't I I tried theater for a little bit and I loved it but it just didn't feel like there was like always this cattiness because I was an actress that the and because I used to work that I felt like it's some of my theater the people in theater were so catty with me about that and I didn't I didn't want to deal with all of that so I was like yeah um, I'll quit that and not do that because I just didn't have the time or want to do that so I instead 
found my own group of friends, which I still have to this day from high school, and was able to, in the very beginning, they were, I, I got made fun of because I was Lava Girl, and it was usually in an endearing way. People would call me Lava Girl. It was like they were ribbing me. But, uh, you know, in high school, everyone likes to make fun of everybody. And at the same time, Taylor Lautner, who played Shark Boy, was going to high school with me. So people would make fun of us because Shark Boy and Lava Girl went to the same high school. Knew that people were just ribbing us when they all, you know, loved the movie. So it just rolled right off my back. And I was able to make friends that, like I said, I still have to this day. And then all that space and time from the acting world allowed me to be able to make friends and people with, with people who kind of had no idea who I was in a certain way because sometimes some of the people when they were older didn't necessarily watch Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Actually, when I met my husband, funny enough, he people used to call me Lava Girl and he had no idea because my husband's 10 years older than I am. He had no idea what a Lava Girl was, so he thought it was some really weird nickname from high school. And finally one day he was like, why do people call you that? And I had to break, I was like, I'm an actor, I was a child actor, and I was this character, Lava Girl. He had absolutely no idea for like the first, I think, like five months that I knew him, which was nice. It was nice to just be, you know, a normal human being. Went to college, graduated college, met my husband, which all of which would have never happened, and had two beautiful, amazing, wonderful kids and was able to kind of somewhat live a normal life until Robert Rodriguez called me in 2019 because we shot in the fall of 2019 for the new movie We Can Be Heroes. I had just had my daughter and she was two or three months old when I got a phone call from Robert telling me that he was wanting to bring back Sharkboy and Lava Girl for this new film and that we'd have a daughter and all this really fun, exciting stuff about this new movie and was asking if I'd be willing to come back and play Lava Girl again after all these years. And it had been 15 years since Lava Girl first appeared in my life. So I was totally gung-ho for it. I was able to go right back to work a few months later. I got my butt into shape after being pregnant. <laughs> so uh, I had a few months to get back in shape and was in the fall filming We Can Be Heroes with Robert getting to be Lava Girl again with my crazy pink hair and and they were so sweet to let my entire family come to Austin, Texas to film. So I had my kids with me and it was just such a wonderful kind of reintroduction back into the business. And to me, just such a beautiful way that I felt like God was telling me that after all these years, I did the right thing by stepping away. And my parents actually, who made me, did the right thing by making me step away because I was able to come back into the business from a new perspective as a mother, as an adult, as a wife, as a adult woman to be able to make more decisions and, and know who I am now after all of these years. It was just such a beautiful thing and I, I told Robert this, but I have like such special feelings for Lava Girl because she kind of, she started my career twice now. She is light. That's her character. That's like her superpower is that she's not just that she's lava. If you've seen the first movie, it's all about the fact that she discovers that she is light and it's just to me such a beautiful kind of symbolism in everything to be able to come back as Lava Girl all these years later who's just light. And I just kind of feel like that's what I'd love to be in this world if I can. Just would like to spread love and light. And wouldn't we all, and a special thanks to Robbie and to Faith for producing and putting together that beautiful piece Go to Netflix, We Can Be Heroes is the movie, and you get to see Lava Girl 15 years later. And it's a remarkable journey that she captures 
in this story. And by the way, what a thing for the parents to do. By the way, what a thing for her to do. I was a young actor and dabbled in that space, and I can't tell you the number of kids, once they were of age, rejected the parents' advice and just dropped out of high school and came to New York or went to L.A. Her choice, well, that had a lot to do with it, too. And her parents, well, my goodness, we learned a lot about their faith walk, the struggles of a loss of a, of a child, which there's no tougher loss, brought them to faith. And as she put it, we learned to grow in our faith each and every day together as baby Christians to adult Christians and always growing and always learning in that walk. And folks, if you love our stories, you know we love hearing stories from you and we want to hear more. So send them to us at ouramericanstories.com. Click on the Your Stories tab and share your story with us and with our listeners. We can't wait to hear them. Finally, Greg brings us the story of an American classic. When Margie Siegel was a teenager, she had a boyfriend with a motorcycle. The boyfriend, he was forgettable. The motorcycle, it wasn't. Since that time, she's written about motorcycle history. Here she is with the story of Harley Davidson. My name is Margie Siegel, and I am a longtime writer and a longtime journalist, and I wrote a book, and it's called, of course, Harley Davidson, the world's most popular motorcycle. And in this talk, we're going to go into Harley history, and we're going to talk about why Harley Davidson is the world's most popular motorcycle. If you ask a non-motorcyclist to name a brand of motorcycle, any motorcycle, any type of motorcycle, the first name that comes to mind, and probably the only name, is Harley Davidson. Harleys are not only well known, they inspire a lot of passion. How many other companies' logos are tattooed on people's biceps? Motorcycles. There is something about motorcycles. The experience of moving through the air at speed that attracts people. And if there is something about motorcycles in general, there is more than a mere something about Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Harley-Davidson has been building motorcycles for well over a century. And in that time, its products have acquired an aura. People who ride Harleys are seen as bad and antisocial and a lot of other things, even though they in real life they're accountants. When most people look at a Harley, they are seeing not just a vehicle, but a cultural icon. It wasn't always like this. When the Davidson brothers and their friend William Harley started out to build motorcycles at the turn of the 20th century, they were only one of over a hundred small American motorcycle factories, all scheming and competing and trying to make it big. Out of all those aspiring U.S. businesses, only Harley-Davidson has continuously made motorcycles. 
William S. Harley and Arthur Davidson, who were the two friends who got Harley Davidson off the ground, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they may have been in the crowd when Edward Pennington, a confidence man, I mean a real crook, and he shuttled between the USA and England, depending on which country was getting a little too hot for him, and he demonstrated a motor-powered cycle in Milwaukee in 1895. This was a huge deal. Although no one has ever figured out how Pennington's motorcycle ran because the design violated several basic laws of physics. This event may have sparked the idea of building a motorcycle in William and Arthur's minds. Well, in 1900, it was very possible to build a motorcycle without violating several laws of physics. Many of the necessities for a successful motorcycle had been invented by the 1890s. The French Didion Bouton company was manufacturing a lightweight and relatively reliable inlet over exhaust engine that could be adapted for use in a two-wheeler. And at this time, a lot of people had been riding bicycles and were getting very tired of riding bicycles uphill and were looking for something that would help get from point A to point B and have you arrive at point B not totally exhausted. The Didion Bouton motor was being imported to the United States where it was dissected and copied. By 1902, at least 13 different companies were building motorcycles in the United States and they were all using variations of the Didion motor. Either they were using the principles that the Didion motor was built on, or they were just simply copying it. Now, although the Harley-Davidson motor used the same valve configuration of the Didion motor, it wasn't a copy. They were doing their own effort. Arthur Davidson had three brothers, and he got joined in his effort by his brothers. And by 1903, a prototype was built, tried out, found to not have enough horsepower and scrapped in favor of a second prototype, which was a success. It did get you up a hill. And there were some big hills in Milwaukee. The first bike was sold in 1904. Within a few years, the enterprise was selling motorcycles, hiring employees, and very important if you want to stay in business, making money. Now, what distinguished Harley and the Davidson's effort from the numerous other backyard motorcycle factories that were springing up at this time? Harley-Davidson had a lot of advantages. First, location. Location and location. Location is very important in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Was the center of the American Industrial Revolution. Along with nearby sources for the raw materials needed to build motorcycles, Milwaukee was well served by both railroads and Great Lakes steamers. Bringing in iron and tires and sending out a completed product was not difficult or really expensive. Milwaukee boasted a skilled workforce that needed little training to produce quality goods. And lastly, but not leastly, Milwaukee produced beer. And beer has always been important to motorcycling. The second 
thing that Harley-Davidson had going for it was quality control. Due to the factory's competent workforce, the Harley-Davidson was well-built and, for its time, reliable. It had more cubic capacity and more horsepower than competing efforts. Although Harley-Davidson's were not particularly innovative, nobody cared at this point. What people wanted to do was get to work or get to wherever they were going. Now, you may ask, why didn't they just jump in their cars? Well, in 1903, there were cars and they were expensive and they were complicated and they needed constant maintenance. And motorcycles were actually faster and you needed some place to keep a car. And if you lived in the city, you had no place to keep a car. And the people who had cars were rich and had enough money to hire a chauffeur. And the chauffeur would spend all day basically maintaining the car when the chauffeur was not driving a milady about to tea or wherever she else was she was going. Harleys at this point were transportation. There was no aura involved. The major thing that people looked at for Harley was this is cheaper than a horse and buggy and I can get where I'm going on time. The third thing that Harley Davidson had going for it was it accorded investors and it avoided borrowing money. Indian, the largest motorcycle manufacturer of the pre-World War I period, borrowed huge sums of money in order to build a foundry. The banks interfered with the operation of Indian to the point where Hendy and Hedstrom, the founders, both retired. In contrast, Harley's investors either didn't meddle with the business or offered good advice, which to the brothers and Harley's credit was listened to and acted on. So here you have a well and efficiently run company making quality goods. And the last thing that Harley Davidson had going for it was that it marketed these quality goods in a cost-effective manner. Arthur Davidson rode hundreds of miles to demonstrate his motorcycle and sign up dealers, while Indian and several other manufacturers supported the hugely expensive and total bloodbath sport of board track racing. Harley Davidson entered Enduros, which were a form of motorcycle competition where speed does not count, but arriving at a checkpoint at a precise time does. Early enduro competitions emphasized reliability and an ability to cope with varying road conditions, which is exactly what the person of the time was interested in in uh, finding a motorcycle that would cope with. Not only was enduro competition far less expensive than track racing, it had a much better safety record. But one of the brothers, Walter, Walter Davidson, entered these endurance races on a regular basis. He did very well with them. These four principles got the company over some major humps and have kept it going to the present day. By 1908, Harley-Davidson was well-known in the upper Midwest, but pretty obscure nationwide. That year, everything changed. Walter Davidson won a national enduro. This one win was widely reported on. It put the company on the map, and sales went from 150 bikes for the year of 1907 
to 1,140 bikes sold in the year 1909, and 3,852 motorcycles sold in 1912. So here you have an American motorcycle industry which is humming along, which is producing motorcycles that are bought by an average person who can't afford a car. And then 1913 appears, which is the watershed year for the American motorcycle industry. The first thing that happened was that Henry Ford came out with a Model T. The Model T Ford offered weather protection and load carrying ability for a little more than the price of a two-wheeler. So instead of buying a motorcycle, which couldn't carry a whole lot, and one passenger could actually afford and maintain, which was important, a car, which could carry goods to market, a lot of goods, and take three or four passengers. So the motorcycle industry shrank about by reason of that. The motorcycle industry also shrank because war broke out in Europe. Many motorcycle companies had imported bearings and magnetos from Germany. World War I ended the availability of these components, but opened up new opportunities for war production. So, one door opens, one door closes, and a lot of people who had been building motorcycles stopped what they were doing and bid on war contracts. The number of U.S. motorcycle manufacturers shrank to about a dozen. And one of those dozen, of course, was Harley-Davidson. The Davidsons and Harley decided that if their business was going to expand, they needed to enter road racing for the publicity value. Careful planning and training of trackside crew, along with newly designed eight-valve racers, produced wins in prestigious races in 1916. Now you look at what Harley-Davidson is doing at this point. They don't just decide, well, we're going to go racing. Let's hire some racers. They carefully plan. They carefully train the CACSide crew. They spend a lot of time with stopwatches. Everything is tested out. And they won a bunch of races. And when the U.S. entered World War I, which was shortly after they started winning races, Harley didn't sell every motorcycle it produced to the government. It provided about 15,000 motorcycles for the war effort, but continued to supply its dealers. And at this point, Harley had quite a few dealers all over the United States. Indian, then the largest American motorcycle company, shipped every motorcycle it made during World War I to the U.S. government, starved its dealers, People couldn't get Indians, and they bought Harleys instead. So between good publicity from race wins and support to its dealers throughout the war, Harley-Davidson entered the 1920s in an excellent position, a very good position, except for one little problem. The Eclipse Machine Company, which is now Bendix, was suing Harley for patent infringement. The Eclipse suit did have some validity, and Harley-Davidson kept the litigation going for years until the four founders had enough money to arrange a settlement. 
The case settled in early 1929, and Harley immediately paid off the settlement amount. This was a big disappointment to Eclipse. Money! We don't want money! Eclipse had pursued the litigation with the idea of taking over Harley, and the settlement payment was this huge disappointment. Curses foiled again. Harley's mainstay from World War I through the 1920s were inlet overexhaust F-Series and J-Series V-Twins. These were simple, rugged motorcycles that could be repaired by anybody with some mechanical skill. And a lot of them were hitched to an amazing variety of commercial sidecars. Now, you don't see commercial sidecars these days, but in the 1920s and 1930s, it was a big deal. You had some very narrow streets in cities. They were very crowded. And a four-wheeler couldn't get through, but a package truck, and that's what they call these commercial sidecars, could. So Baker would have a delivery vehicle, which would be a Harley-Davidson hitched to a sidecar that was modeled to look like a loaf of bread. And people who were delivering candy would show up in a with a package truck and it would look like a little cottage with lace curtains. And there were all sorts of different inventive uh, side hacks which could not only haul goods around crowded cities, but also advertise the owner's business. The founders were not content just to sell bikes for commercial use. They became concerned about the low number of motorcycles sold for sport, and they decided to revive motorcycle clubs. So these, they also decided that it, to be a boon to dealers as well as Harley's factory, the clubs would now be run out of dealerships, which was a good thing for the dealers and also gave people a place to meet. Clubs were a really good thing in a few years because they got Harley-Davidson, its dealers, and an awful lot of riders through the Depression. You really do got to have friends. And then in the summer of 1929, a lot of bad things happened in 1929. Harley introduced a 74-inch twin, the V. The early Vs were a total disaster. Every single bike sold between August and October 1929 had to be rebuilt with the factory issuing parts and instructions and the dealer supplying the labor. And it says a lot for the relationship between Harley and his dealers that the dealers were willing to do this for free. Harley didn't pay them. Now, the side valve disaster got straightened out. People started buying motorcycles again, and then they stopped buying motorcycles because the Depression started to take hold. The factory had to lay off a lot of workers. Dealers had to cut their operations to the bone, but the goodwill Harley had built up over the past 30 years got the company through. Harley collaborated with Indian. Uh, by this time, uh, Excelsior Henderson had gone out of business due to the Depression uh, to encourage club racing under new Class C rules. Class C was another good thing that happened during the Depression. This was amateur racing, and people would go out and race, and their club would come out and support them, and 
people would have fun and enjoy themselves and not be quite so depressed. And the companies were encouraging this because they were too broke to hire a factory team. In 1936, Harley produced the knucklehead, which was its overhead valve twin. Now, it was formally called the E, and it was, Harley was able to do this because in the past seven years since they introduced the V side valve, metallurgy and lubrication had advanced to the point where knucklehead, uh, which was an overhead valve uh, twin, was a commercial proposition. And the new knucklehead stirred interest in sales. So Harley's doing better, but now it's facing a new challenge. You see, things go up, things go down, and we're looking at World War II. After numerous tests, Harley won the U.S. Army contract for motorcycles, in large part due to what Harley has always traded on, rugged construction, a larger motor, and quality control. The other candidates for that contract just broke down more. After the war was over, the company ramped up civilian production and upgraded the product. Many ex-GIs rode, and the rest of the 1940s were good times for Harley. However, within a few years, veterans were settling down, raising families, and trading the motorcycle in for a washing machine, and the good times kind of ran out. In the 1950s, sales dropped to the point where Harley-Davidson sometimes took on some contract work for General Motors. There were bright spots in the 1950s. The introduction of the Sportster in 1957 stirred interest in sales like the knucklehead had 20 years earlier. And people did keep riding. Some people did. Uh, the number of people who rode uh, dropped a lot. The people who did ride were outside the mainstream. They looked different. They dressed differently. And they seemed tough and they seemed antisocial, and these were very attractive qualities to teenagers growing up in a conformist culture. Now here we have the aura starting. Harley is becoming synonymous with toughness and attitude, and some people really like that idea. But it wasn't enough people, so there weren't a lot of Harleys sold. When the good times restarted, though, it was in large part due to a most unlikely cause. A Japanese company? Yes, a Japanese company named Honda. Honda established an import depot in Los Angeles in 1959 and spent a lot of money making motorcycle popular and mainstream. In the 1950s, motorcycling was kind of antisocial. But now people could ride bikes and not be thrown out of their apartments, which happened to one woman I talked to. Kids learned to ride on the new imported mini-cycles, and as soon as they could get necessary together, bought a Harley because Harleys were bad and tough, and they had the aura, the impact that the imports didn't, and young people wanted to buy into that. Now, with the resurgence in riding, came a new interest in motorcycle events. 
The American Motorcycle Association had been sponsoring gypsy tours, which were rides and campouts, often with entertainment and racing, since the 1920s. The 1949 Hollister event was part of a gypsy tour. This is the event that ended up on the cover of Life magazine. Now, for the record, nothing happened. I'm sorry, nothing at all happened. I've talked to several people who were there. A whole bunch of people showed up. This was a family event. Their wives and girlfriends showed up. This was not an invasion force. And people drank some beer and enjoyed themselves. The cops closed off a couple of streets for drag racing. There were some bar fights. People got busted for uh, drinking too much. I mean, what's different than the normal Saturday night? The photo with the guy on the bike surrounded by bottles was staged by a bored life magazine photographer who was tired of standing around there and not seeing anything to photograph. In the 1960s, these events, uh, Laughlin, Daytona Beach, Loudoun, and the granddaddy of them all, Sturgis, exploded. Thousands of people showed up for the experience of hanging out with fellow bikers and watching some racing and drinking a little beer. These events and many smaller local events have continued to the present day. Uh, there's a myth that bikers are loners. In reality, much of motorcycling is very social. <laughs> All these events are social events. So here we have Harley Davidson. Motorcycling is becoming real popular and the company is trying to expand to catch the wave of motorcycle interest, but years of low sales had emptied out the capital reserves and it can't do it. At the end of 1968, American Machine and Foundry bought out Harley-Davidson. Now, people are really unhappy with American Machine and Foundry. American Machine and Foundry is bad. It's caused all sorts of problems. Anything that bad that happened to Harley is because of American Machine and Foundry, um, not true. The AMF buyout had good points and bad points. AMF pumped a lot of money into Harley-Davidson, allowing the factory to modernize. However, AMF also demanded that the assembly lines be speeded up past anyone's ability to put out a quality product. And selling an unreliable motorcycle to some large uh, guys who are not really patient and uh, understanding is kind of not a good idea. Irate customers and unhappy dealers demanded that something be done. In 1981, a group of Harley executives aided by a friendly bank arranged a buyout. Harley was its own company again, and after a few rocky years, and it was really rocky for a few years, started to regain customer trust and respect. Harley also started its own company club, Harley Owners Group, which is called HOG mostly, and it continues to be a social center for riders based on the local dealership. You see how all these ideas just get recycled, but they get recycled because they work and people like them. HOG is so successful that it is studied in business administration programs. 
So the years after the buyout were boom times for Harley once the got over the that hump. There were wait lists for new bikes. Harley Davidson fielded a flat track racing team, sponsored different road racing efforts, and even built its own road racer. And it also upgraded the product. The Evolution motor of the 1980s gave way to the twin cam, also known as Twinkie, of the 21st century, and later to the Milwaukee 8 for 8 valve. So here's to Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson has weathered changing tastes, environmental protection legislation, economic ups, economic downs, and ups and downs in the business environment. The company has successfully dealt with all challenges in the last 118 years, and it's coming up with new stuff. It just introduced an electric motorcycle, the Livewire, and a new adventure bike with a new engine. So crack open a beer and drink a toast. Here's to Harley-Davidson and the next 118 years of great motorcycles. Margie Siegel, signing off. And a great job by Greg Hengler, and a special thanks to Margie Siegel for telling the story of Harley-Davidson. By the way, order her book, Harley-Davidson, A History of the World's Most Famous Motorcycle. Go to Amazon.com or The Usual Suspects. It's a terrific read. As I had noted in the beginning of this story, when Margie was a teenager, she had a boyfriend with a motorcycle. The boyfriend was forgettable, and the motorcycle wasn't. And this story bears out that sentiment. She spent a lifetime writing about, thinking about, and talking about this American iconic brand and the relationships that Harley-Davidson built, first with its dealers and ultimately with the Hog brand itself. And that is, of course, the Harley Owners Group. It's a terrific American story, a terrific business story. And in the end, well, it chronicles the sheer fun and love of riding a Harley. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and check them out. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know that feeling when you walk into your home? Take a deep breath. Ah. <sighs> 
and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.